Welcome to The Lead, a New Lines podcast. I'm your host, Rasha Ilas, and with us today is Christiane Gruber, who is a professor of Islamic art at the University of Michigan, and Erica Lopez Prater, professor of contemporary art history at McAllister College and the University of Wisconsin Stout. Erica and Christiane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We'll be discussing the ongoing controversy at Hamline University, which has triggered a national conversation about academic freedom and who decides what is appropriate to be taught in the classroom. But first, a little bit, a little bit of background on the debacle, and I'll try to keep this short. In October, Erica showed medieval paintings of the Prophet Muhammad during an art history class. The paintings are part of Islamic history, and they were created by Muslim artists for Muslim leaders as a show of reverence to the Prophet and to Islam. There was nothing untoward about them, nothing objectionable or controversial per se, though many Muslims today believe that depicting any image of the Prophet in any way is a sacrilegious act. Such was the belief of one of the students in Erica's class. So this student complained to the university's administration, even though Erica had followed all the trigger warning protocols that are instituted in classrooms around the country these days. But in this case, that didn't seem to matter. The dean summoned Erica and told her that showing the images was like using racial epithets. Then Erica was told that her services were no longer needed and her contract was not renewed. The story might have stopped there, and perhaps we would not be talking about it today uh, had the Hamline administrators not escalated the situation further. Here's a series of these escalations. The university sent out emails to students and faculty calling the incident Islamophobic. The president of the university signed a letter that stated that respect for the Muslim students should have superseded academic freedom. The university then held a town hall to discuss what by now was referred to as the Islamic, the Islamophobic incident on campus. In attendance of this town hall was the Minnesota representative of CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, which is a civil rights organization for Muslims in America. Himself not an academic or an expert on Islamic art, he still shared a strong opinion about the incident. He said, that teaching uh, such art in the classroom was akin to teaching uh, pedophilia art. He said it's like teaching that Hitler was good. He said anyone who wants to teach such uh, what he called controversial stuff about Islam uh, can go teach it at the local library or the coffee shop. MPAC, another Muslim American organization, disagreed. They issued a statement in support of Erica, as did the Middle East Studies Association. And a few days later, the National Office of Care also joined the chorus, supporting academic freedom and distancing themselves from their Minnesota office. And in the latest development of this story, we just learned that the faculty at Hamline have publicly called on the president to resign. There are so many ironies in this debacle, but let's start with this one. Christiane, um, I want to ask you about the essay that you wrote in New Lines in December when you broke the story uh, before it went national. 
In that essay, you explain that showing depictions of Prophet Muhammad and other Islamic art, for that matter, comes in part as a push to decolonize the canon, as you put it. Elaborate on this point for us. Well, historically, the history of art has been quite Eurocentric. And in fact, uh, surveys of art history, like the one that Erica was teaching at Hamlin, have typically focused on uh, the course of artistic development in Europe, eventually reaching over to America. But individuals such as myself have been issuing more or less a clarion call and saying you need to uh, incorporate other areas of the world, other cultures and other religions, and they can't just be tack-ons. You have to really rethink the entire survey, what um, theoreticians of uh, decolonization call disenclosure. In other words, uh, to recenter other areas of the world, to, in essence, provincialize uh, the European canon, uh, and to make sure that, as Erica did in that particular uh, classroom exercise, to re-entangle world art and to find the overlaps, the invocations, the multiplicity, and, and sometimes the contested realities of art. And so it's not necessarily an easy um, procedure to, to rethink the survey, to decolonize it from from its parameters, but that's exactly what needs to be done, and it's part of uh, diversity efforts in general when it comes to the curriculum. And just so we have an idea, tell us, you know, where these uh, paintings of the Prophet fall within this context of Islamic art and decolonizing the canon. Well, it's interesting. Those paintings have two different positionalities. Um, you can teach them either in a survey of Islamic art history, or you can include them in the survey of global art. Um, in a history of Islamic art, which is already more contained, you would uh, tackle them as you move through through the centuries. And so you would talk about them in coordination with, uh, for example, 14th century Islamic art in Iran, which includes these kinds of illustrated manuscripts, but also include the building of palaces and mosques and calligraphy and ornament. So that would be one location for those, those images in the survey of Islamic art. However, the other location for these paintings would be the global survey of art history. And so uh, the position of those paintings as they are uh, for Erica's class is that if it's, for example, a painting that was made in the early 1300s, you'd start to compare it to say icons of Christ from the late Byzantine uh, period, or perhaps uh, sculptures of the Buddha from the same period that show the Buddha either uh, as a figure or um, uh, and iconically, so not as a figure, like through his, uh, his footprints, which are known as the Buddha Pada. And that's what Erica did in the class, because the minute you start uh, doing this uh, global comparative analyses, you start to see that uh, humans' creative expressions usually butt up against the same problems. And in this case, with religious art, is how, what are the strategies, uh, what are the anxieties, uh, when it comes to representing the divine and the prophetic, um, how do you make the numinous visible and palpable when it's in fact transcendental? And that's a problem that, that percolates through every human culture and Islam is no exception to that rule. Erica, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that Christiane did a beautiful job of describing uh, the complexities of the images that I used specifically um, and also help to contextualize my class um, in particular. 
In fact, I, in previous classes, I had used exactly the same kinds of themes as, for example, I uh, explored the art of, of South Asia and in India, thinking about different uh, strategies of showing uh, the Buddha is either uh, aniconically or iconically and how you can see these cultures change um, in terms of their attitudes over just sometimes just a few centuries time. Uh, I also had talked about Byzantine Christian imagery and had uh, led up to the periods of, of Byzantine iconoclasm. Uh, so I wanted to put all of these different attitudes towards the depiction of the divine and these contested relationships to it in conversation with each other particularly because there is a, a common misperception that through all of its history, the religion of Islam has, has always forbidden uh, images that are prophetic or are uh, iconic, iconic in, in some way. And I wanted to diversify, demonstrate how there is much more richness and diversity within this particular religious tradition and how it also relates to uh, other Abrahamic faiths and the ways in which they, they've all had contested relationships with the depiction of, of the divine. Christiane, actually, in your essay, you said that omitting such images in a lecture about Islamic art would be like omitting Michelangelo's David in a lecture on, you know, Western art history. Can you elaborate a little more on that? Sure. Those those two paintings in particular that Erica included in her classroom are essentially considered canonical and masterpieces. In other words, you can't uh, circumambulate or sort of get around them. Um, the reason for that is when you build your, your survey of Islamic art, there are really some major moments and masterpieces uh, that have, have to be, you know, in your syllabus and in your lectures. Uh, the reason the gem at Tawarikh, or the Compendium of Chronicles, has to be tackled is that it is, in fact, the earliest history of the world that was ever penned. And that happens to have been by Rashid al-Din, and it also happens to have been produced as a, a very large a manuscript with, uh, with many paintings. So it actually brought together many artisans and calligraphers in an atelier that was dedicated to that. And in fact, that masterpiece was made in what is considered the very first professional art institute in the world in Tabriz, Iran. So you have to talk also about institutions of art making. Um, that's the, the, the early 1300s painting. The, the other one from the late 16th century um, is a royal multi-volume manuscript that includes an enormous amount of gold pigment. And it was one of the most expensive undertakings of the Ottoman sultans who were the caliphs, right? So the, the rulers of Islamic lands, including the, the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. So these were large scale pious endeavors that, that mobilized resources and people and cost um, the rulers a, a really pretty penny. And that's where you see masterly skills uh, being um, basically put to the task for these kinds of projects, and which is the same as, as say, the Sistine Chapel or Michelangelo's David. Mm -hmm. And where are these uh, two paintings housed today? So the, the, the painting that is included in the Compendium of Chronicles is in the Edinburgh University Library, which has a very good collection of Islamic manuscripts. 
Um, and uh, the later Ottoman painting is in one of the volumes of the biography of the prophet that was made in Ottoman times that today is preserved in the Topkapı Palace Library in Istanbul, Turkey. A number of the volumes are dispersed, so you'll also find folios from uh, that biography of the prophet in many other uh, worldwide museums and libraries, including uh, in the New York Public Library and elsewhere. Okay, let's take this opportunity to hear Erica speak about the Compendium of Chronicles and the biography of the prophet. How do you teach it to your students and tell us about it, educate us? Sure. So, you know, one of the things that I said before I showed the image was that um, I was, this is, I was teaching a global survey of, of art. So there's only so much depth you can get into uh, when you're trying to cover all space and time in 15 weeks, right? But I did explain my pedagogical reasoning for showing these images, even while I knew that uh, there were some students who may be very sensitive about them. So before showing the images, I, I demonstrated um, my, my pedagogy behind this. I said, I'm showing these, these images to you for a reason, to demonstrate the, the rich variety of art making within Islamic traditions, right? So frequently um, uh, people may talk of the Islamic tradition, and this is a term that's so capacious that it's almost meaningless, right? Um, we hardly ever speak of all of Christendom anymore, right? Um, so we can see this, this rich tradition unfolding in these various locations. And we can see artists and patrons uh, thinking through how best for them at that particular moment to uh, depict the the divine and the prophetic in ways that make most sense to their sensibilities um, at the time. Uh, I also like to include these because it, it shows the rich diversity within Islamic art production. So I really do like to demonstrate this broad range of different kinds of artistic production, but also contextualize them in their particular place and time to show Islam never was um, a, a monolithic faith. But par particularly today, there's such a broad variety of beliefs and attitudes that in order to, to study this, we need to acknowledge the broad diversity within this rather uh, large, capacious umbrella. So how did these depictions become so controversial for, you know, many Muslims today? How did, you know, when did this happen that depictions of the prophet or the divine of, uh, you know, have been, are considered sacrilegious or blasphemous by some anyway? So images of the prophet Muhammad were usually bound between the covers of books, so that they were always a very private phenomenon uh, all the way up to uh, the modern period, at which point with the onset of uh, the printing press, uh, reprographic technologies, uh, the film industry, digital media, we started to see those images pop up into the public domain, and with them, of course, anxieties. So these anxieties around images of the Prophet Muhammad started to really emerge uh, over the course of the 20th century with uh, some movies that were produced. But um, the, the real 
um, sort of drive to go against even the Islamic images is a very recent phenomenon. Um, and you can find it in some fatwas. Um, and here I want to rem remind everybody that a fatwa is basically an opinion uh, that regulates Islamic matters. A person can follow it or not. It's uh, certainly not universal. But the only fatwa uh, that has, in fact, said that no images of Muhammad are permitted, and that includes Islamic paintings, and not just the cartoons, came out in 2013 in Saudi Arabia by a Salafi cleric whose name is Al-Munajid. And there are other fatwas like uh, Asistani, the Shi cleric, who says these images are perfectly fine as long as they're respectful. So it's really important to look at the fact that these fatwas are coming out as a result of the Yulin's Postin and Charlie Hebdo cartoons and so they, they try to regulate this matter, but it's iterative and it's responsive to disrespectful cartoons. So there's been a lot and, and those were, yeah, just to remind everybody, those were satirical cartoons uh, that were actually meant to shock and provoke um, and to cause uh, discord. They were not images like the images that we're talking about today. That's exactly right. The The intent behind those cartoons was precisely uh, to shock and to test uh, the, the boundaries of freedom of speech. And of course, it overlapped uh, with xenophobia. Yes, the intent and the aesthetic. I mean, th those, yes. were not, those were cartoons that someone drew up, you know, in contemporary times. They were not from the canon of Islamic history. Exactly. And so there are images of Muhammad and then there are images of Muhammad. And just because we identify them similarly doesn't mean they have anything to do with each other. Um, so we actually have to un untether these two fields of production, um, do a splitting and not a lumping uh, when it comes to this visual material. Um, and so the problem I see is that it's very easy cognitively to put them in the same pot. And we have to engage in the much more difficult mental labor to not do that. Um, and Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the fatwa that came out in Saudi Arabia by Salafi Sheikh in 2013, banning all images of the Prophet. I remember when I went to school, uh, I was going to school for just briefly in Saudi Arabia as a uh, child growing up uh, in the region. And in religion class, I think I was uh, in maybe fourth or fifth grade. I don't know how old you are. Um, maybe nine, ten years old, uh, and our religion teacher told us that all photography was haram or banned in Islam, and yet our school had huge fo photos and portraits of the king everywhere you looked, <laughs> and uh, you know even us at the time, fourth or fifth graders, we were puzzled why you know how come if photography is Haram, we see it everywhere. I mean, there was TV and there was um, Saudi channels with moving picture on TV, but we also had photos of the king all over school. And of course, um, the teacher, you know, didn't have an answer for us because at the time they were mandated to teach us these things by the Saudi government. But, you know, they they just didn't know how to... <laughs> how to manage any dissonance among the students. So I was just reminded by this. Um, 
that sometimes these fatwas come up and they don't have, you know, they just, they're issued in a vacuum and they don't have a conversation with the real world. Uh, and in mm-hmm. Russia, ahead. you know, uh, many fatwas are issued and either they don't have a response or, and this is really important for us to underscore, they get a pushback and even Muslims mocking them. Um, and so it's really important not to always go to the fatwa, go to the doctrine, uh, go to the orthodoxy. We actually have to look at the very messy landscape of Muslim beliefs. So if if we are to look at another famous fatwa that came out of Saudi Arabia that made the international news uh, a few years ago because of climate change, there was snow in Saudi Arabia and a cleric issued a fatwa that building snowmen is haram, so prohibited. The same logic that you're building, right, yeah, sculptures. Well, in this case, it's not because it's a three-dimensional sculpture, which is what you might think it would be. It's because snow sculptures belong to the sensual arts. And so when that fatwa was uh, made public, if you go on Twitter, you'll see Muslims all over the world, all over the world, mocking the fatwa, and in fact, building all sorts of funny snow sculptures as a response. And it's really important for us then to not look at this as a either or, but to look at the messy, productive middle where everybody's clamoring and disagreeing and mocking and issuing injunctions, but also mocking them. And that's the real landscape out there. It's messy and plurivocal. Indeed. And actually, um, yeah, this also begs the question of uh, someone who might take uh, a lot of these other fatwas seriously. Like, for example... Um, I mean, a lot of Muslims feel very strongly that nothing should be depicted, not an image of any human. I mean, this is based on fatwas actually that came out in a modern day Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, any image of any human uh, or an animal. I remember our tech, our science textbooks in Saudi Arabia used to run a line uh, across the neck of any drawing or photograph of an animal. I don't think we had uh, images of humans, but even an animal had to be de- decapitated, so to speak, in the science textbook to to um, to kind of bring home the point that it was not created because all creation belongs to God. Uh, I mean, and this is, you know, I mean, we were eight or nine years old, you know, you know, even even we didn't take this seriously. <laughs> Uh, at at the time, it, we were just perplexed by all of that. Yeah, Rasha, it, it's really funny that you mentioned this this line across the neck in paintings because you see those black lines across the neck in manuscript paintings. When, for example, a manuscript that was made in the 14th century or 16th century lands in the lap of somebody who looks at it in the 20th century, that person will go in with a black pen and do what's called or cutting of the head, which is a symbolic throttling, right? But what's really ironic about that is that it happens in the 20th century and there are no problems with those figures back in the 15th century. Uh, And so you can see how this is moving, a, a moving equilibrium of emotions and expectations over the centuries. Yeah, one of the many, many ironies of this whole conversation. But also this brings me to my next question. What happens, you know, if someone, um, you know, feels strongly, as many do, that um, no images should be shown in any church, actually? I mean, and that's something that 
uh, you know, a lot of Muslims feel very strongly about and no images should be shown anywhere, not in museums and not in art class and not just images of Prophet Muhammad. Uh, you know, where do you draw the line? I mean, that's something that I've thought about as well, too. The, the lesson that I gave right before um, the so-called incident in my class I had been talking about Byzantine art. I had been showing, uh, you know, beautiful mosaics of of Jesus, right? Who is a prophet? Um, there was no problem with that among my students. Um, so it does seem to be, uh, you know, something that is this this ban on images or um, the censorship that has been implemented presents such an incredibly slippery slope, right, for, for all academics um, <clears throat> and jeopardizes everything that, that we might teach, right? And I would say if you have a problem with uh, imagery of any kind or of a specific kind, perhaps, um, you know, don't enroll in an art history class where images are, are prima materia, right? It would be like taking a a, a music class, but not wanting to hear anything, and then asking the the music instructor to describe with language what an F minor seven chord sounds like, you know. And actually, there are fatwas that in Saudi Arabia. I do remember when I lived there as a child that music is haram. So you know, you could you could get that. <laughs> yeah. Um, music is haram, of course, when uh, there's plenty of music in Saudi Arabia and nobody will explain the sort of dissonance to you. But that's another story. Um, OK, so this actually does bring me to my next question of uh, let's talk about the most vocal voices on campus uh, sometimes can be the most extreme. Um, and this is, you know, far left, far right. I mean, unfortunately, we've been also seeing culture wars um, ebb and flow, mainly ebb on campus. And, uh, you know, how do you navigate this as educators? Things are so different today from when I was in college here in this country. We didn't have trigger warnings. Nobody thought that it was their job as an educator to protect our feelings in any way, shape, or form. Um, and I can only imagine all sorts of situations, what happens when, a, you know, a creationist complains in science class that they're being taught evolution and that just causes harm internally to them because of the cognitive dissonance. And the list goes on and on and on. How do you navigate this new terrain on campus? I mean, it's incredibly difficult, um, you know, and we can look at the ways in which colleges and universities um, have become uh, adopted more of of the customer service model. We can look at the ways in which colleges and universities have um, slashed tenure track positions in favor of cheap adjunct labor. Um, meanwhile, um, that is accompanied by administrative bloat. Um, so the whole model is is kind of turned, it seems that, that so many places, um, everything seems to be turned on its head from when I was a college student too, right? Um, and, and it seems that students 
who have, you know, are, are now feel emboldened to be in the driver's seat when they are still, you know, getting their, their preliminary higher education, when they are not the ones with, you know, advanced degrees, which is, is really um, challenging and concerning because it, puts people like me and so many other uh, professors who are um, who are adjuncts who have been um, perhaps had had careers sidelined by the pandemic and that shutting down job openings or families um, or just these very uh, competitive uh, uh, environments in on college campuses now we have to um, you know, be at the mercy of the whims of many students, some of whom can be very vocal. Um, and it is a challenging landscape to navigate. I think I'm, I'm proof of that. Um, and, and I think that there is this big problem right now with a lot of the discourse, um, not just at Hamlin, but across many college campuses in which uh, the, the notion of discomfort, intellectual discomfort, is equated in some way with harm, right? We need intellectual discomfort frequently in order to learn really um, challenging and big lessons. Um, and while, of course, as professors, we want to be kind to our students, we want to know them as individuals, um, this idea that, that classrooms need to be a safe space in which no discomfort ever happens, in which students' ideas and preconceptions should never face any kind of criticism or conflict. Um, ele those elements uh, associated with uh, quote unquote safe spaces, I think, um, that presents a problem in, in college classrooms. Yeah. Um, Christiane, in your forthcoming essay, which is going to run uh, today, the same day that this podcast is going to air, you talk about your work being censored by, you know, what one could call illiberal liberals. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, it, about how that's, that contributes to the problem sometimes. It's not just uh, students. Yeah, I mean, uh, when it comes to censoring speech cultures, it's not just those who have perceived, perceived harm or who are attributing malevolent intent to you, um, but it's also those who are perhaps on the, the liberal end of the spectrum who believe very strongly that there should be a policing of speech, even though we're actually active in a, a very large kind of shouty marketplace of ideas. And so the, the problem with the, the so-called liberal left is that there's a bit of a totalizing worldview um, where you see the world in a kind of Manichaean battle of good versus evil. And those who, who tend to be of the moralizing um, side of the equation have also sort of therapeutic tendencies. They believe in care and uh, community. They use these sort of therapeutic terms to uh, stake a moral higher ground, what I might call a, a, a ground of moral supremacy. 
Um, and the, the problem with that is that once you claim control for the, the niche of morality, everybody else is immoral. So if you believe that there are no images of the Prophet Muhammad or that they shouldn't exist, then if you are staking that, that claim of moral ground, uh, then you have to take action and you police speech and you police images and that will result in, in censorship. And it's, it's actually extraordinarily detrimental to different cultures, different religions, there are the multiple manifestations to the, the real labor of, of the academic, which is to inhabit um, a kind of gray zone that's very uncomfortable. Everybody has uh, discomfort when they're handling big ideas, but the scholar has to have a kind of cultivated neutrality when it comes to, to thinking and, and writing. Um, so it's a kind of mood neutral practice that, that kind of mobilizes the middle and you have to be ready to, to have people flinging at you from, from the right, from the left and, and everywhere else. But um, in, in that kind of construct where you have, uh, you know, the right, the left, the illiberal left, uh, whatever you want to call it, I think what we need to do as scholars is to basically disengage and demystify what people want to see as a crisis construct. because. Uh, if we don't see a crisis, uh, then we can move forward, and, and it's an important to uh, inhabit that that gray zone. Um, extremists like to pull apart the gray zone. In fact, ISIS is very well known for for writing about how to extinguish the gray zone. Uh, either you're with us or you're you're against us. Kind of you know the, the Bush doctrine, which is a false dilemma. Um, and in the gray zone for ISIS are the Muslims who don't partake in their ide uh, ideology. So in the end, it's the Muslims themselves who lose out in this equation. Mm -hmm. And you've actually had your work literally censored by, you know, editors who never even discussed uh, the censorship with you. They just went ahead and just censored your work because they thought, that was the right thing to do because they were following someone else's lead. They, you know, they were not experts in Islamic art themselves, and they just decided to follow someone's lead that this was sacrilegious work and should be censored. Yeah, and I'm not the only one. Many colleagues have written to me about you know, uh, really important publishers. We're talking about the Oxfords and the Yales of the world who have uh, financial income. Uh, from the Middle East, and uh, some of those individuals believe that if they include images of the Prophet in their books, then they're going to have a problem on their hands. And one very famous example that you can read all about online is uh, the Yale book by Yait Clausen uh, entitled The Cartoons That Shook the World. Um, that's a book about the Ulan's posts and cartoons. And in her book, she actually makes a point that there are historical images of the Prophet from Islam. Um, and because she's a, a scholar and a historian. And without her knowledge, uh, the editors at Yale University Press removed the Islamic images from her book. Um, and of course, she went, uh, she went public with that. So even Yale University Press that has a series of books on Islamic art history has censored those very same images as well. So the American academic presses are complicit. Yeah, it's interesting because we also published a piece uh, this week about how the New York Times, in their coverage of the Hamline 
university debacle decided not to publish the you know the images at play they decided to include a link so that people who wanted to see it would have to take this additional step to click on the link and see the images but what's interesting is not necessarily the decision that the New York Times made, which is their editorial decision and their prerogative, but it's that they set an example because after the New York Times did that, uh, and because of the gravitas that the New York Times has in you know the media landscape, other media outlets followed suit, including you know Al Jazeera, for example. So um, you know it's just it, it's just very interesting. It carries a lot of weight when uh, these decisions are made and and they actually end up creating footprints on the landscape of censorship, often unwittingly. And this is a it's a responsibility that I think everybody needs to take more seriously. Everybody in the media, in the publishing world, um, in academia and, you know, all editors and so on. That's right. It takes a really big team to un undo the damage that that came with those cartoons. Um, and so it's going to take collaborations and really thoughtful, iterative work. Um, and besides censoring these images or deciding not to include them, I also saw the uh, Compendium, Compendium of Chronicles image um, with Muhammad's face pixelated in one of the <laughs> in one of the articles, which is what actually happened to me twice in, in two of my articles. So that, that made me laugh because now with digital art, right, you can just pixelate a face rather than smudge it. Um, so it's this new technology of iconoclasm, that the pixel. Um, so that was interesting. And the other thing I thought was fascinating is now the Compendium of Chronicles painting, which is a laudatory image of the prophet, is actually being weaponized by certain actors, they're actually flinging it on Twitter to Hamlin as as if uh, a snowball, um, and that is this is really troubling too. As as if you know they're they're cursing Hamlin to a medieval Islamic painting of the Prophet. So now for some it's like a curse word, and it's it's fascinating to see how all these actors are coming to the image with their own intents and with their own set of weaponry, and we have to be really careful to sort of uh, neutralize those things so that we can continue to do our work properly. Absolutely. And this brings us also, with all fairness, uh, not that this is the subject of this episode, and uh, we actually, I mean, I, you know, I just don't know much about what, what was going on on Hamline uh, University campus uh, in the past years and whatnot, but uh, I have uh, read and heard that there's been um, you know, cases of, uh, I don't know, racism and students belonging to minority communities feeling unwelcome, uncomfortable, uh, all those things. And also, as this uh, incident went viral, everybody's getting uh, violent threats, and, and that is absolutely terrible. So it's not just that the material has become weaponized, but um, the the humans on campus are being targeted with threats, and that is truly terrible. And it really is a sign of the just terrible, terrible times that we live in today in terms of academic freedom and culture wars. Um, you know, and um, 
yeah, I mean, it's just, it's not a good thing. Um, and it's also interesting because we are, I mean, the, the United States apparently is one of the worst offenders, if not the worst offender in the West when it comes to censorship of books. And that includes censorship of books in schools and in prisons. Um, this is, you know, above and beyond this specific incident or uh, depictions of the prophet or Islamic art and whatnot. Um, you know, we're witnessing the governor of Florida, uh, Ron DeSantis, um, for example, banning African studies in high schools in Florida, uh, appointing ideologues to the board of trustees of a publicly funded liberal arts college in Florida. Um, th these are all, I mean, this is, how do we move forward? I mean, the United States has always been known as a beacon of education. People from around the world, the world want to come here to seek their higher education. And yet we're in the midst of all these distractions and culture wars and politicization and weaponization of books and images and knowledge. What are some solutions to mo moving forward? And this is a question for both of you. Erica, do you want to start? Sure. I was just trying to kind of, it, it's a big question and there are no easy answers to that. And I, you know, looking at the situation, I think there is this hugely tragic irony in that the administration was trying to prevent what was uh, considered to be quote unquote harm in this kind of therapeutic sense where they had this student who felt um, offended. But in this really, um, it, you know, in, in their approach to trying to sweep this issue under the rug um, and, and, you know, through like the quick dismissal of an adjunct professor, instead, you know, they have been having to reckon with um, a long history of, of racist and Islamophobic events on their college campus and within the Twin Cities and within our country. Uh, you know, I can't speak much to the history of these incidents at Hamlin uh, because this was my first semester there. So uh, what I know is the things that I've read in the press, too. Um, there just yesterday, it, I was reading about how in 2019, uh, some student uh, athletes at Hamlin videoed themselves um, singing some song that used the, the N word in it. Um, and how this, you know, was was a pain that they they these students carry with them as they move through this campus, um, and so in this rather ham-fisted attempt to uh, quash anything that might be perceived as harmful as a trigger warning, instead they've really brought a tremendous harm to to a lot of students on the Hamlin campus who were already hurting, um, and they have. This has resulted in students and faculty and administrators receiving threats. My own family has received threats, um, you know, which is, is very troubling. And we've uh, struggled with feeling safe ourselves. And, and this is so tragic because with a little bit of thought and with a little bit of, without being so reactive, uh, 
there was this really great opportunity to to one bring together those parties who may be natural allies right people like students and their professors their professors who cared deeply about them um instead it seems that we uh you know think we were pitted against each other un un unnecessarily this could have brought about a, a really deep uh learning opportunity for the members of the hamlin campus um and those more broadly um in the twin cities or farther afield um but instead uh there was this very uh reactionary um uh, event during the community conversation town hall um which i should say i was never um invited to participate in um, only framed about um, Islamophobia as though my actions were self-evidently Islamophobic. Um, I, by that time, had been <laughs> excommunicated from the community in, uh, in, in, in word, although I still had to teach there. Um, so I think that while this is not, um, you know, a, an easy answer, I think that there need to be challenging, sometimes discomforting conversations among all of the um, offended or hurt parties that happen in good faith and that happen as Christiane described in this gray zone right where where we can learn from each other right it's not you know one directional um and i know that there have been some opportunities like this that have been um arising for example at, at recently at carlton college which is about an hour away from the Twin Cities. Um, there was a, a panel conversation there that I was um, fortunate to be able to participate in, in which the focus of this conversation wasn't, you know, um, you know the, it wasn't an open event where anybody could come or the media could come. Rather, it was something that was really geared toward the students at that particular um, school, and particularly the Muslim students who uh, make up the community there. Mm -hmm. So uh, one thing I hear you saying is uh, one of the lessons learned here is not to conflate the very real issues that can arise on campus with uh, students, uh, you know, minority students feeling unwelcome, disrespected, you know, targeted, however, uh, however unpleasant the experience is on campus. And that is a real thing for a lot of students. Uh, but not to conflate that with the academic uh, discourse in the classroom and and not to pit the students against the professors, uh, to address each issue and give it its uh, rightful attention um, without sort of um, confusing the two together. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Christiane, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I really uh, enjoyed your concluding thoughts there, bringing that together based on what Erica was saying. Um, I can't really elaborate more on, on Erica's wonderful answer, safe to say that I'm ever the optimist. I see silver linings in every situation, including torturous ones, ones that are really difficult. Um, and we're at a moment where we see the, the swing of the pendulum in the United States and it's swinging wildly. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, well, is what is the silver lining? Uh, to my mind, uh, one of the big silver linings is that here we are talking, 
publicly about Islamic art and about Islamic paintings of the Prophet Muhammad. And this is not a subject that is taught uh, in most uh, high schools in the United States, and there are very few professors of Islamic art. It's still a very small field, um, even at the college level. Um, and so what I think we can do now is talk about the value of a very public education beyond the ivory tower, where we mobilize all of our partners, and that includes our, our the members of the Muslim community who are our, our allies and our, our very strong supporters as Islamic art historians, so that we can work together to, to raise awareness about the this uh, patrimony of, of a global scale, um, and to raise awareness that there's a necessity uh, for this knowledge. We need more uh, training, we need more teachers. Um, with teaching comes empathy, and with empathy comes community. So in a sense, the opportunity here is to stitch the seams back together. That takes a lot of work. It, it takes more or less a, a truth and reconciliation uh, paradigm. Um, truth, of course, means you have to be honest about what you've done, and if you've made mistakes, perhaps you should apologize uh, for them. But uh, I'm still a believer in reconciliation, and I, I believe also very strongly in the emic Islamic uh, notion of reconciliation, which is known as islah in, in Arabic, which basically means peacemaking among individuals. And so when we talk about islah, we have to talk about community building and not willful community breaking. And that's the silver lining. Now the hard work of uh, putting the pieces back together has to start. And perhaps we'll have more opportunities to teach Islamic art uh, publicly in the future and to raise awareness for works of art that are extremely rare and have been rendered more vulnerable than ever. Community building and dialogue indeed. Professors Christiane Gruber and Erica Lopez-Prater, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I appreciated this. Thanks, Rasha. It was wonderful chatting with you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Lead, a New Lines magazine podcast. You can read more about our coverage of this topic, including Christiane Gruber's essays on our website, newlinesmag.com. The Lead is produced by Joshua Martin. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening.